0: Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussion on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And welcome to a very merry Anglo-Catholic special from us at The Sacramentalist. We're glad you're joining us. And we're going to kick this episode off by me asking you, Father Wes, what is your
1: biggest Christmas hot take? You know, I've been racking my brain trying to think of one, and I guess I'm just incredibly boring because I don't know that I have any. I guess I, guess, um, I don't love Christmas music just as a whole. Like, um, I, don't mind, I don't mind carols and hymns that are Christmas related, but I absolutely hate Christmas music radio. So you're not a fan of um, "I'm Gonna Buy These Shoes"? No, no, i know not. That a fan. <laughs> I know that song, and I'm I'm certainly not a fan of it, or pretty much any other Christmas song. Maybe really "Carol funny. of the Bells," but that's a carol, so I don't know. I yeah, Christmas music's bad; it's overrated. I would do f- fine without it. There you have it, Father
0: Wesley's Christmas hot take. Take it off the radio and just play top forty, or play Charles Wesley hymns. There you go. I'm basically just a grumpy old man. Grumpy old man. Yeah, well, I am too. That's, so my biggest Christmas hot take is I get so like viscerally angry around Christmas time in churches that pull on the nostalgic element of the holiday, where Christmas Eve becomes about holding a candle and singing Silent Night. And if you don't do that, you've ruined Christmas. I've, I had someone tell me that they felt Christmas was ruined because that wasn't done one time in their life. And my hot take is just Christmas is a feast of the incarnation. And if you're not talking about it, if you're not preaching about it, if your service is more about lights and feel goods and family and the spirit of Christmas, whatever that is, the spirit of Christmas people is the Holy Spirit hovering over the womb of the Virgin Mary as she conceives. Uh, Jesus Christ. And then as he gives, as she gives birth to him nine months later, that's the spirit of Christmas. Anyway, that's my hot take is Christmas is about the incarnation people. And that brings us to uh, what we're going to be doing on today's episode. Uh, for this Christmas bonus episode, we are going to read and discuss a sermon, a Christmas sermon by John Henry Newman, it was preached on Christmas Day. Oh, I don't have the year in front of me, but during his lifetime, which would have been the 1800s. And so, shall we just jump into it, Father? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Um, how about I'll read the, the first bit, and then we'll stop, discuss, and move on. Sounds good. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1:14. Thus does the favored apostle and evangelist announce to us the sacred mystery, which we this day especially commemorate, the incarnation of the eternal word. Thus briefly and simply does he speak as if fearing he should fail to in fitting reverence. If any there was who might seem to have permission to indulge in words on this subject, it was the beloved disciple who had heard and seen and looked upon and handled the word of life yet in proportion to the height of his privilege was his discernment of the infinite distance between him and his creator. Such, too, was the temper of the holy angels. When the Father brought in the first begotten into the world, Hebrews 1.6, they straightway worshipped him, and such was the feeling of awe and love mingled together, which remained for a while in the church after angels had announced his coming. An evangelist had recorded his sojourn here and his departure. There was silence, as it were, for half an hour. Revelation 8, 1. Around the church, indeed, the voices of blasphemy were heard, even as when he hung on the cross. But in the church, there was light and peace, fear, joy, and holy meditation. Lawless doubtings, importunate inquirings, Confident reasonings were not, and heartfelt adoration, a practical devotion to the ever blessed Son, precluded difficulties in faith, and sheltered the church from the necessity of speaking. Well, Paul's right there. Wes, what thoughts do you have on that?
1: I love his emphasis on uh imminence and transcendence kind of at the same time, that the evangelist is testifying to this concrete reality that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, he, he was embodying a particular body in a particular space in a particular time. But at the same time, the evangelist is aware of this great distance between himself and the creator. Um, and so that's really the kind of one of the main cruxes of Christian theology is, is this, uh, this how, do we, how do we balance that imminence versus that transcendence? And uh, very fascinating. And I think he does that beautifully.
0: Yeah, I think that the way he words it about the, it's the, the the balance of awe and love that is present as you behold the Christ child in your heart, or as St. John is writing about his friend, this man who, as he says, he's quoting from uh, uh, the epistle of 1 John, that we have held, we have touched, we have seen. Like, this is a person they've known, but when John introduces him in his gospel, he's not... Uh, Jesus, this man we've all talked to and you know sat around and had dinner with, it's, it's, the, it's the transcendent word. It's ah, It's mysterious. And I love how he says, it's as if he was fearing he should fell in fitting reverence. But he knows him and he loves him. So I think that's a huge part of Christmas as we celebrate the coming of Christ. There is joy and peace. But as he says, there's also fear and holy meditation upon Jesus.
1: I also think that the very last line of the paragraph is helpful uh, in light of the episode that we did on ex-evangelicals recently. Uh, He says, And heartfelt adoration, a practical devotion to the ever-blessed Son, precluded difficulties in faith and sheltered the church from the necessity of speaking. Mm. That idea that devotion kind of trumps, you know, all the other aspects of, of what we do. Not that what we believe is insignificant, but that it's subordinated to... Our acts of devotion.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of St. Augustine, who, is, who says that the point of theology is that we might worship well, and the way it was a professor I had used to say, theological reflection should lead to a doxological lifestyle. The whole point of theology is that we may worship. And so he's saying that they were worshiping in the early church. And I think what John Henry Newman's getting at is it took a while for the church to articulate a theology of the Incarnation in precise terms you know 325 years until Nicaea and so but they worshiped the entire time and that devotion was what maintained their heart not a theological
1: articulation absolutely yeah all right all right take us from there absolutely he who had seen the lord jesus with a pure mind attending him from the lake of gennesareth to calvary and from the sepulcher of mount to mount olivet where he left this scene of his humiliation. He who had been put in charge with his virgin mother, and heard from her what she alone could tell of the mystery to which she had ministered, and they who had heard it from his mouth, and those again whom these had taught, the first generations of the church, needed no explicit declarations concerning his sacred person. Sight and hearing superseded the multitude of words, Faith dispensed with the aid of lengthened creeds and confessions. There was silence. The Word was made flesh. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Sentences such as these conveyed everything, yet were officious in nothing. But when the light of His advent faded and love waxed cold, then there was an opening for objection and discussion and a difficulty in answering. Then misconceptions had to be explained doubts allayed, questions set at rest, innovators silenced, Christians were forced to speak against their will, lest heretics should speak instead of them.
0: Yeah, I I think it's just continuing what we were just saying, that the church responded in theological articulation to really the, the the criticism of heretics against Jesus. It was not the church's uh, primary intention to write creeds and confessions, but it was simply to worship. And I love what he says that kind of the seeing and the beholding and knowing Jesus held them for so
1: long in their adoration of him. It kind of reminds me, I know it's maybe even stereotypical to use this as an illustration, but, you know, people who work with money are trained to identify the real dollar bills uh, so that then they can spot the fakes, those which depart from what's real. I think that's kind of what he's saying, that the early church is so enamored with the apostolic faith that's being handed down to them by those who actually experienced it, that, they, that they're that they not yeah, trying to formulate propositional statements so much. It's just then as the church continues to develop and to grow, you know, you have people who are doing that. And so the church is forced to speak, to speak up for the truth that was contained in apostolic preaching. The goal was always to protect the
0: devotional life of the church. And so I think as we approach Christmas this year and every year, and as we approach every Sunday, as we receive word and sacrament, the idea is to behold Jesus and to be in that intimate connection and contact with him, which the creed protects, rightly, from distortions of his person and of the Trinity and of other things.
1: Alright, should we continue on?
0: Alright, let's go on. Such is the difference between our own state and that of the early church, which the present festival especially brings to mind. In the New Testament, we find the doctrine of the Incarnation announced clearly indeed, but with a reverent brevity. The Word was made flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. God was in Christ. Unto us a child is born, the mighty God. Christ over all, God blessed forever. My Lord and my God, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Almighty. The Son of God, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. But we are obliged to speak more at length in the creeds and in our teaching, to meet the perverse ingenuity of those who, when the apostles were removed, could with impunity insult and misinterpret the letter of their
1: writings. It, it raises a question to me uh, that I think is interesting, and, and perhaps we can see how this develops throughout the rest of the uh, sermon. But where does the need for heresy come from? I mean, is it, is it purely pride pride? Or is there something else at work there when people feel the need to innovate and to um, depart from what's been delivered from once and for all for the saints? So I I don't know.
0: Maybe I'm sympathetic towards many of the historic heretics. I think a lot of them were just trying to articulate the and flesh out some of these sentences from scripture. He's saying like they're just trying to make sense theologically of what has been received. And the tradition has to, and they're doing it on their own accord, that's the problem. When the whole tradition and the whole church comes together at a council, they're able to clearly articulate, no, that's not actually what we've been received. This is what it is. And then they put it down so that way the new heretics or future generations don't fall into the same error. But I think a lot of heretics are trying to honestly
1: read the Bible and be faithful. I don't think they think they're going against a tradition. Some of them do. That's, f- that's fair, I think. Uh, though I think we should um, pull out the soundbite of you saying, I'm sympathetic to many of the historic heretics. Yeah, pull that soundbite out, and then you can... <laughs> that's the new motto of our show. There you go,
0: and then you can um, replay that, and it will get me, you know, excommunicated. There you go. Look what yes, Father said. Right. Look
1: what he said. We'll put you on trial. There we go. Let's, let's go on. Nay, further, so circumstanced are we as to be obliged not only thus to guard the truth, but even to give the reason for our guarding it. For they who would steal away the Lord from us, not content with forcing us to measures of protection, even go on to bring us to account for adopting them and demand that we should put aside whatever stands between them and their heretical purposes. Therefore, it is necessary to state clearly, as I have already done, why the church has lengthened her statements of Christian doctrine. Another reason of these statements is as follows. Time, having proceeded, and the true traditions of our Lord's ministry being lost to us, the object of our faith is but faintly reflected on our minds, compared with the vivid picture which his presence impressed upon the early Christians. True is it, the Gospels will do very much by way of realizing for us the incarnation of the Son of God, if studied in faith and love. But the creeds are an additional help this way. The declarations made in them, the distinctions, cautions, and the like, supported and illumined by Scripture, draw down, as it were, from heaven the image of Him who is on God's right hand, preserve us from an indolent use of words without apprehending them, and rouse in us those mingled feelings of fear and confidence, affection and devotion towards Him, which are implied in the belief of a personal advent of God in our nature, and which were originally derived to the church from the very sight of him.
0: I think that's a beautiful paragraph of just extolling the virtue of being a creedal tradition, reciting the creed during church, because it protects you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, too, I, I like what he's trying to do here. And so far as the, the modern scholarly narrative is that there were multiple Christianities and the kind of what we think of as the Orthodox party sort of through a political power struggle won out the day. I think what he's doing here is offering us a a different way of understanding that relationship of the creeds that uh, because the, um, the events of the Gospels of Christ's life and the apostolic preaching are so fresh in the minds of the early church, those pictures are so vivid to them that they're able to uh, accurately uh, put those into propositional form in what we now know as the creeds. Uh, so I, I think that's a helpful distinction to be made and, and one that can kind of push back on the sort of scholarly impulse to say, oh, the church just sort of made it up for political purposes.
0: Yeah, sure. And it's not just the, um, the actually kind of dogmatically declare creeds as we'll see in the next paragraph there's it's the hymnody of the church it's the liturgy it's the worship so there's all of these things taken together are guardrails that protect you and that's why it's why we do what we do right We're, we yep. we believe the tradition is is a guide of the holy spirit and when you come to something like christmas or easter the birth the resurrection and you start asking why what who you, you need tradition to guide you on those answers
1: it's almost like the way that we pray shapes the way that we
0: believe. We should do an episode on that. Maybe we'll call it Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. <laughs> That's right. All right, should we move on? Let's go. I'm going to read a few of these paragraphs because they're a bit shorter. And we may say further still these statements, such, for instance, as occur in the Te Deum and the Athanasian Creed, or especially suitable in divine worship inasmuch as they kindle and elevate the religious affections. They are hymns of praise and thanksgiving. They give glory to God as revealed in the gospel, just as David's psalms magnify his attributes as displayed in nature, his wonderful works in the creation of the world, and his mercies towards the house of Israel. Actually, I'm going to stop there. And I want to say that what we've been saying, I think is true and good and meet and write so to do, and that is the creed is a doctrinal statement that protects us. But notice what he does here. The Creed becomes a hymn of worship. And this is why the creed original originally in the church was something that was sung and chanted. It was considered a piece of the worship, not just a a confessional statement.
1: Absolutely. And and this is why I think in, if you've listened to some of our episodes, you've heard us talk about why theology should be done in the church and not necessarily in the academy, at least as the main place to do theology. And that's precisely for this reason, because the church is where we offer these doxologies. Um, and so it's most fitting then that we do theology in that context. Um, so I think it's... Um, I think it's pointing to the ecclesial nature of, of what we should be doing when we do theology, uh, rather than as a purely academic discipline among other academic disciplines. And where this
0: comes to life for me is that in our church and our traditions, we genuflect in the creed, and he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and the Holy Ghost, and you and you go down on one knee. And that to me turns the creed and then you stand right back up. But it turns that the creed into that act of worship, because what is genuflecting? It's it's a paying of homage to someone. It's kind of a medieval, uh, and maybe even earlier, act of before royalty or nobility. And so it's it's paying this homage that Christ came down and we go down in humility. So it transforms a theological proposition into this moment of worship and eminence and, and, uh, between you and Christ that he was incarnate for you.
1: Yeah, well, how about we move on? With these objects then, It may be useful on today's festival to call your attention to the Catholic doctrine of the Incarnation. The Word was from the beginning, the only begotten Son of God, before all worlds were created, while as yet time was not. He was in existence in the bosom of the Eternal Father, God from God, and Light from Light, supremely blessed in knowing and being known of Him, and receiving all divine perfections from Him, "'yet over one, yet ever one with him who begat him. "'As it is said in the opening of the gospel, "'In the beginning was the word, "'and the word was with God, and the word was God. "'If we may dare conjecture, "'he is called the word of God "'as mediating between the Father and all creatures, "'bringing them into being, "'fashioning them, giving the world its laws.' imparting reason and conscience to creatures of a higher order and revealing to them in due season the knowledge of God's will. And to us Christians, he is especially the word in that great mystery commemorated today, whereby he became flesh and redeemed us from a state of sin. He, indeed, when man fell, might have remained in the glory which he had with the Father before the world was, but that unsearchable love which showed itself in our original creation rested not content with a frustrated work but brought him down again from his father's bosom to do his will and repair the evil which sin had caused and with a wonderful condescension he came not as before in power but in weakness in the form of a servant and the likeness of that fallen creature whom he purposed to restore so he humbled himself suffering all the infirmities of our nature and the likeness of sinful flesh, all but a sinner, pure from all sin, yet subjected to all temptation, and at length becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So just this That's good stuff. Yeah,
0: really good. Wow. I think it's interesting that he says, let's talk about the Catholic doctrine of the incarnation, and he ends with redemption, the crucifixion. And... I think that's a very helpful thing that, at least as Anglicans, we try to push and put forward is that the incarnation and the death and resurrection are inseparable realities. You don't get one without the
1: other. You don't get the fullness of salvation. Absolutely. I I think my theory is that he has uh, Athanasius' book on the incarnation in mind here. Because uh, what he's arguing is uh, the divine dilemma that Athanasius talks about. He's summarizing it, but the Ath- um, the divine dilemma to Athanasius is that uh, God, as the creator of the world, loves the world. Uh, so in light of man's sin, you know, he wants to forgive, but he can't, because of his justice, just say, oh, it doesn't matter that you sinned. It's, it's fine. We'll let it but, go. Yeah, you'll still be corrupt. I'm, I read
0: through. Uh, Athanasius is on the Incarnation every year for Advent. That's like my Advent mm-hmm. devotional. And as you were reading it, I thought the same thing is this sounds a lot like Athanasius. But Athanasius does the same thing. He says in there that Christ was born in order to die. And by, but he means the death on the cross and, and the resurrection. And so keeping these things together. And I know it's really beautiful if you ever look at an Orthodox icon of the nativity. One thing you'll notice is that Jesus is really wrapped tightly in these clothes, and you think, oh, it's the swaddling cloths that is talked about in, you know, the the King James version. That's the term swaddling clothes. It's actually—he's wrapped—it looks like a mummy. He's wrapped in death clothes, even as a baby. And the idea that the icon is trying to present is, even from his birth, his destination is the tomb to conquer death.
1: The only other thing that stood out to me, I mean, other than the fact that this was incredibly beautiful, uh, was that he mentioned that he came not as before in power, but in weakness, in the form of a servant, in the likeness of that fallen creature whom he purposed to restore. So he humbled himself, suffering all the infirmities of our nature, in the likeness of sinful flesh, all but a sinner, pure from all sin, yet subjected to all temptation. Uh, To me, that would pose problems for the Immaculate Conception. Keep talking, because in the because in the Immaculate Conception, if Mary's born without original sin, uh, Christ then is inheriting something that is not like our flesh.
0: Mm, sure.
1: So that seems like that becomes problematic, and I know um, Father Thomas Wynandi, uh, who's actually Roman Catholic, talks a little bit about this. He still affirms the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception because he's a Roman Catholic and he has to. But it's hard to really corroborate the doctrine with some of his writing on the incarnation that what has been assumed has been redeemed so if christ doesn't assume a body that is like our bodies then how can we be how can we be redeemed
0: yeah the only response i've ever heard to it is that sin is a abrogation and intruder in the human body or in human nature and so you can assume human nature without sin and still redeem human nature because it's important that you redeem or that you assume humanity, but sin is not an essential component of humanity. And so there's a purging that takes place. Uh, but but I, I love the phrase of Lancelot Andrews, Bishop Andrews, famous Anglican bishop from the turn of the 16th to 17th century, where he says, from the moment of Christ's conception, he purged humanity of its original fault. And so there, I mean, he's that's going against the Immaculate Conception because he would have to receive... Um, it's the original fault through flesh of his mother, but it's this beautiful moment that the incarnation itself is a redemptive event that finds its full manifestation on the cross. And I think that's what John Henry Newman's getting at. I'm also blown away as someone who will be preaching a Christmas sermon in a number of days that I couldn't imagine standing up and giving this to the people um i don't know if he's preaching to oxford dons or the average layperson could just handle such poetically beautiful theology i mean we preach pretty theological sermons i would think father but this is this is a this is a lecture of sorts it's it's pretty mm-hmm. great yes it is All right, I'll move on. I have said that when the only begotten son stooped to take upon him our nature, he had no fellowship with sin. It was impossible that he should. Therefore, since our nature was corrupt since Adam's fall, he did not come in the way of nature. He did not clothe himself in that corrupt flesh which Adam's race inherits. He came by miracle so as to take on him our imperfection without having any share in our sinfulness. He was not born as other men are. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh. John 3 6. So, talk about that in light of what you just said with the Immaculate Conception.
1: Well, I don't want to because it sounds like I might be wrong. Well, good. Well, then I'll just read the next paragraph.
0: All Adam's children are children of wrath. So, our Lord came as the Son of Man, but not the Son of sinful Adam. He had no earthly father, he abhorred to have one. The thought may not be suffered that he should have been the Son of shame and guilt. He came by a new and living way, not indeed formed out of the ground as Adam was at the first, lest he should miss the participation of our nature, but selecting and purifying unto himself a tabernacle out of that which existed. As in the beginning, woman was formed out of man by almighty power, so now by a like mystery, but a reverse order, the new Adam was fashioned from the woman." He was, as had been foretold, the Immaculate Seed of the Woman, deriving his manhood from the substance of the Virgin Mary, as it is expressed in the Articles of the Creed, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin
1: Mary. It would be interesting to know at what point, we'll have to look this up maybe, uh, what year he did preach this sermon and how close it was to his conversion to Rome, though the Immaculate Conception wouldn't have been an official dogma of the Church of Rome at this point either, I guess. No, and I've
0: always heard that he opposed the dogma. Uh, He opposed the dogmatic declaration of the Immaculate Conception. But maybe that's more from political standpoints that it hurts ecumenical relationships and not from his own personal conviction. But he does say here in this line, but selecting and purifying unto himself a tabernacle out of that which existed. And that's a reference to the Blessed Virgin. So we'll leave the Doctrine of the Immaculate Conception for another episode. Yes. The point he's mainly trying to make is that Christ came in a way that both conforms to our human nature, that he might participate, but is also outside of human, the common human experience, outside of the lineage of Adam, that he might break in and renew it. So Jesus is truly a new humanity. No one else has been born in a fashion like him, but we're united to him and become part of that.
1: All right, let's continue on. Uh, Thus the Son of God became the Son of Man, mortal but not a sinner, heir of our infirmities, not of our guiltiness, the offspring of the old race, yet the beginning of the new creation of God. Mary, his mother, was a sinner as others and born of sinners, but she was set apart as a garden enclosed, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed, to yield a creation nature to him who was her creator. Thus he came into this world, not in the clouds of heaven, but born into it, born of a woman, he the son of Mary, and she, if it may be said, the mother of God. Thus he came, selecting and setting apart for himself the elements of body and soul, then uniting them to himself from their first origin of existence, pervading them, hallowing them by his own divinity, spiritualizing them, and filling them with light and purity, the while they continued to be human, and for a time mortal and exposed to infirmity, and as they grew from day to day in their holy union, his eternal essence was still was one with them, exalting them, acting in them, manifesting itself through them, so that he was truly God and man, one person, as we are soul and body, yet one man." So truly, God and man are not two, but one Christ. Thus did the Son of God enter this mortal world. And when he reached man's estate, he began his ministry, preached the gospel, chose his apostles, suffered on the cross, died and was buried, rose again and ascended on high, there to reign till the day when he comes again to judge the world. This is the all-gracious mystery of the Incarnation, good to look into, good to adore. According to the saying in the text, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So a couple things to note. He calls Mary a sinner. Mm. So he's not yet at his Roman
0: stage or on the precipice of it. But the other thing that stands out here is these few paragraphs we've been commenting on where he's explaining the Catholic doctrine of the incarnation. He's really summing up in sermonic prose the first four ecumenical councils. He's gone through kind of the eternalness, the begottenness, the triune nature of the Godhead, that the Son is co-equal, co-glorious with the Father. He, and then in this last paragraph that you just read, he's, he, he really went after the uh, Nestorian heresy that was going on in the, oh the early 400s, where he calls Mary the mother of God. That's what the council declared and it condemned. Nestorius because Nestorius said that in Jesus there were two persons, the person of the son and then the person of Jesus Christ. But the council said, no, 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 it's one person in two natures. So this whole paragraph is just preaching the theology of the first four ecumenical councils. Well, that is the majority of the sermon that John Henry Newman preached. He goes on a little bit and pretty much re reiterates everything he just said, but that's the chunk of his sermon, is that on this day, Christmas Day, it is a feast of the incarnation, and it is a day to stop and reflect on what it means that God became man. And he does so by giving us the theology of the first four councils. Absolutely. Closing remarks,
1: Father? it's it's always a good reminder like like you, what you do with reading on the Incarnation every advent or something like that it's always such a beautiful thing to meditate on uh, this movement of God of becoming man dying on the cross for our sins and being resurrected uh, definitely definitely worth the read for sure well we at the
0: Sacramentalist wish all of our listeners a very merry and blessed Christmas as you reflect on the Incarnation, as you worship our Incarnate Lord. May He fill your hearts with all joy, peace, fear, and holy
1: reverence. And Father, would you bless us. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.